Welcome to Unfolding Words. I'm your host, Aunt Tracy M. Moorings, and every week I come and share biblical truth to offer light for your walk and life for your soul. This is episode number 80, Delight, Death, and the Downward Spiral. We are on Genesis chapter 3, and we are currently in the middle of an 11-week study on the book of Genesis chapters 1 through 11. So if you're just joining Jump right in, purchase the study guide on Amazon. It's called Dust and Divinity. Thank you to all of you who have let me know that you're enjoying the study, that you're learning, that you're being edified. That is such a blessing to hear. And if you do have any questions, you can email me. I'll leave a link in the show notes. Send me a message on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook. And if I get enough questions, I will do a Q&A podcast or a Facebook Live, or an Instagram, whatever works best, but it depends on if I get any questions or enough questions back. So keep that in mind. So we're going to jump into chapter three this week. So we know what goes down in chapter three. It's one of those turning points in the book of Genesis. But first, let's take a look at where Adam and Eve fell from. They fell from the Garden of Eden, which was the first tabernacle, the temple, God's dwelling place on earth. It was known as the Garden of Delights also. And this was a place of provision and divine presence, a dwelling place where humanity is in the presence of God continually. So we know that it was a mountaintop garden because rivers flowed out of it, just like the future Jerusalem temple in the book of Ezekiel and Zechariah. And it was filled with gold and onyx decorations that were also part of the tabernacle and the priestly garments. And Adam was given the job to work and keep the garden, just like the priests who protected the sacred space of the tabernacle. So God walked with Adam and Eve They enjoyed his presence. And then we know what happens. So the narrative of the fall of humanity actually begins with the last verse of Genesis 2. And it says, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So a lot of people think that this means that man in his sinless state would not need clothing and would not want it. But that's not the meaning. Adam and Eve were naked because they were in a state like newborn babies. They were innocent before God. They still had a lot to learn. So when babies come into this world, they're naked and then they're clothed with clothing, but also clothed with knowledge and wisdom so they can grow into mature adults. You'll notice that God is always clothed in a garb of light, something called the glory in the Bible. And this glory cloud that surrounds God is seen as a palace or a temple, an organized army of sorts of angelic beings. And the glory cloud is God's garment. It's his clothing, regal and a priestly kingly office. So man who was in God's image should also be clothed as well, clothed with this priestly robe. And the robe of office was not something that man was born with, but something that he was to mature into by gaining wisdom based on God's righteousness and under God's watchful eye. The robe of office is for elders, those who are mature, not for children. And it's never taken, but always given by God. So God is clothed with glory. Jesus was clothed after his resurrection. So his redemption was not 
a reversion back to a state of nudity. So after he was resurrected, he was clothed back in a robe. The saints in heaven are clothed with glorious white robes as well. And another example that clothing is the norm is that Paul said he did not want to be unclothed, but further clothed that mortality may be swallowed up by life. He says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 4. So clothing is used as a metaphor for immortality or a state of eternal life. So being clothed and having immortality has always been God's will for man. And it's safe to say that the nudity that exists in the Garden of Eden was not God's ultimate goal for man, but simply the starting point. And this robe theme is an important one in scripture. And you'll see it many times over in the book of Genesis, especially with reference to kingly authority. And there's lots of attention given to the robe of Aaron, the high priest, because he was the representative man for all of Israel. See this in the book of Exodus. And then the soldiers cast lots for Jesus's robe of office to signify that the powers of the world were fighting for dominion over God's creation. The glorious white robes of the saints signify that they're not only cleansed, but that they also have the privilege to follow Christ in judging the world. Another mark of authority. So Adam and Eve were not going to stay naked forever. They were to be given robes of office, which would come in time and in connection with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So chapter three begins with the crafty serpent approaching the woman with Adam standing by listening. And he told them that their eyes would be open and that they would be like God, knowing good and evil. What does this mean? Clearly, they weren't blind because the woman saw that the tree was good for food. This was a correct judgment. It was a delight for the eyes. Also correct. And that it was desirable for wisdom. Another correct assumption. But the wisdom would come from patiently waiting for it, not from taking it. Also, how about being like God? Weren't they already created in God's image and after his likeness? Then why was it a temptation to become like God if man is already like God? And what about knowing good and evil? So were Adam and Eve in a state where morality wasn't an issue? I don't think so because they were in a covenant with God. They were morally good and they knew right from wrong. Adam especially because we're told that he was not deceived about what was going on. It was Eve who was deceived. So in a way, the tempter was telling the truth, but he lied in saying that they would not die. The word for cunning, which is used for the serpent, is also the word subtle, and it's used for one who is sly, shrewd, or prudent. And as a good creation of God, the serpent was indeed very sly and shrewd. And Jesus says we are to be wise as a serpent and innocent as doves in Matthew 10 and 16. And in the garden, Satan misused the serpent's wisdom and craftiness to teach evil. So if the serpent's cunning nature was inherently evil, then it would have been wrong for Jesus to teach us to be wise as a serpent. That cunning nature of the serpent was not evil, but when Satan used it for evil, then he and the servant deserved judgment. So calling this devil a serpent compares him with a snake and assigns to him the characteristics of a snake, 
which imply that he's an ambush killer who's sneaky and crafty and deadly. All the things that we think of when we think of snakes today. But he was crafty in misusing and perverting the good gift of wisdom that God gave. Adam and Eve needed the knowledge of good and evil to rule as they matured under God's care. But they decided on their own instead of God providing it when they needed it, that they would take it on their own. Adam was the priest, we know, because he's guarding this tabernacle, this garden tabernacle, and he was supposed to know better because God had already told him and given him instructions. So that's why he sinned with open eyes. He didn't faithfully lead Eve out of the situation after teaching her the commandments of God. So what do you notice about the first words that the serpent speaks? What are the purpose of his words. Satan comes with a question that's filled with doubt, lies, and it appeals to mankind's desire to walk in pride. And it's the same tactics that he uses today, the same that got him booted out of the garden. And so he begins a sort of character assassination of God. And notice that this all takes place in the garden. Just like Jesus was tempted when he was full of the Holy Spirit. This doesn't happen on Satan's territory. It happens where you least expect it to happen. So let's look at the exchange that took place. A lot of people say that Eve got it wrong when she said that God said, don't even touch the fruit of the tree. But in a sense, she glorified that commandment not to eat when she adds not to touch it as an extra commandment. So just as Jesus said, don't just not commit adultery, but he says, don't even lust with your heart. That's the same spirit that she's showing here. And this is the same thing that Jesus later taught, better safe than sorry. In Genesis 3 and 4, the serpent attacks the truth of God's word. He attacks their trust and their obedience and what God said. He made them doubtful of the one who had given them truth, which is God himself. So the sin that they committed follows a pattern of sin that still exists today. He had her consider something that she shouldn't have been thinking about, take it and then eat it and then give. First John 2 and 16 says, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eye and the pride of life is not from the father, but is from the world. So this sin is the same way that it evolves today. And notice that Satan came for the trophy the glory of man who is woman herself and all that she symbolized. Satan knew that both man and woman were made in God's image. And he also knew that Adam was formed from the ground, yet the woman was built by God. It's safe to say that Satan knew that God was putting a plan in motion through this man and this woman that he created. God's building of the woman was a shadow pointing to the future plan that he was building a city for himself through the woman's descendants. Satan knew that God was building a temple of humanity where he would dwell with them and in them. The garden is a picture of that. And Satan knew that God's plan was imaged within his images, man and woman. So we see that it wasn't in Satan's heart to assist this eternal plan, but to prevent it from coming to fruition. So he sought to steal the glory that was presented to Adam, the woman, and to train wrecked the plan that God put into motion and to derail God's plan of building a magnificent bride for his son. The Apostle Paul said that the woman is the glory of man 
And a lot of people tend to explain Eve's actions in the garden by saying she was the weaker vessel. Women are more prone to temptation, which is not even existing in those verses. You can't glean that conclusion from these verses because the Bible doesn't even fully support this view. But what it does support is that everyone walking in their God-given position will cause the purpose of God to come into plan. And Adam neglected to do that. He neglected to walk in his God-given position to protect the garden and its inhabitants. And even though he wasn't tempted, he wasn't fully acting 100% in his role as a priest and protector in the garden. So when Peter identifies the wife as a weaker vessel, he's not referring to her as inferior or not equipped. Instead, he's referring to her as an honorable vessel, like fine china, which is not at all an inferior material. She's to be handled differently, not because she's weaker in strength, but because she's precious and made of a different material that requires a different kind of handling. So given this, Adam should have stepped in so that this deadly progression of sin couldn't happen. Eve saw she made a judgment, but she wasn't mature enough to make this judgment. She took, she fulfilled the desire of her flesh And she thought she was making the right choice, which was a nod to pride. And this all led to the fall. So sin has this domino effect. And we see it play out right here in this chapter. Satan plants a seed. Eve responds. Adam participates. The whole earth is affected and eventually all mankind. So if we yield to temptation, there's a sin which will ultimately lead to judgment. And after they sinned, instead of going to God, they tried to remedy it by themselves. But we know that what they tried to do was not satisfactory. They sewed these fig leaves together and they would have to keep sewing them together to keep them covered. And then they hid themselves and we see this further progression of sin. There's this blaming going on. Adam blamed Eve or rather he blamed God and then Eve points to the serpent. So Adam does not, in fact, blame Eve. He blames God. He says, the woman you gave to me. And Eve does not blame God, but she says, the serpent you put in the garden. The serpent deceived me and I ate. And her saying this could have easily been a confession of sin as well. So in verse seven, the first judgment is shame because Adam and Eve realize that they're naked. They're unfit for that judicial authority that the tree was to bring to them. And shame is a separation from the image of God. When Eve teamed up with the serpent, it was like there was a spiritual adultery that took place because the serpent wanted to plant his seed through his words in her. And we're going to see this all throughout the book of Genesis, the seed that's contrary to God's seed that puts the royal seed in jeopardy, the royal seed being Jesus, the Messiah to come. The seed is thought of as more of a thorn or a weed when it takes root. This is the theme of spiritual authority that you're you're going to see over and over again throughout the Bible. And notice how the punishment that they're given is linked to Adam and Eve's original calling in Genesis 1 and 28. So they have a curse and there are consequences to it. The serpent has to crawl in his belly, which is a picture of God's enemy being made docile and defeated. Eve will give birth in pain and Adam will produce food in pain instead of tending to the abundant fruitfulness of the garden. So he would be given 
fruitfulness, but instead he has to work for it. So the original roles now involve a difficulty that didn't exist in God's original plan, which was to be fruitful and keep the garden. And notice the parallel structure of how God spoke to each of them after their sin. So God questioned them, Adam, Eve, and then the serpent. And then when he hands down the consequences, it's reversed. The serpent gets his consequence first, Eve, and then Adam. And this curse is troublesome on so many levels. Adam, he shirks his responsibility a second time and shifts blame when as a priest, he should have borne the sins of the people, which is Eve, him. He should have borne the sins of himself and Eve, but he didn't do this. So their eyes were opened, which means they know good from evil. So Eve made a judgment on her own without God's help that the food was good and pleasant to the eyes. It was not bad, but it was to make one wise. And then God said, you'll surely die because they took for themselves a kingship and authority that was not yet ripe enough for them to take. So God wasn't being mean in telling them not to partake of the fruit of these trees. That's not even the nature of God. He just wanted them to mature into it. So those of you who were parents, you don't give children something that is not to their level of maturity. You don't give a toddler matches or fire to play with because they're not mature enough to others to understand. They don't have the, yet the wisdom to grasp it. And this is the same thing in the garden. He understood that they did not have the spiritual maturity to handle what the fruit held for them. So this temporary prohibition on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was designed to nurture man's maturity into godlikeness. It was to give them more time to grow. And the rest of scripture confirms this for us. It's always God who determines who is given kingly authority. Men never take it for themselves. And when they do, it always winds up disastrous. So let's talk about this phrase, knowing good and evil. So in context, God has been seen pronouncing things good in Genesis 1. So for man to get the knowledge of good and evil would mean that man would have the privilege of making these judicial announcements just like God. Solomon was the first fulfillment of this truth because he prays to be given an understanding heart to judge thy people, to discern between good and evil. And he says in 1 Kings 3 and 9, for who is able to judge this weighty people of yours? So notice that Solomon does not assume that he's already has enough knowledge and wisdom for this discernment. Instead, he prays for it. He requests it from God and God grants his request. And immediately we see that Solomon exercises a godlike judgment in the story of the two women who have this problem with the babies. Whose baby is it? And Solomon, in his wisdom, makes a kingly judgment and judges correctly. We can also look at what the wise woman said to David in 2 Samuel 14 and 17. It says, For as the angel of God, so is my Lord the king to discern good and evil. So in other words, man's judicial authority is a copy. It's an image of God's authority. And the angel of God has wisdom to know all that is in the earth. This is verse 20 of 2 Samuel 14. And this knowing includes seeing. It says, my Lord, the king is like the angel of God. Therefore, do what is good in your sight. So babies don't have the wisdom to know good and evil. You have to mature 
into it. And this maturity can go two ways. It can either mature into glory, like with Solomon and David, or into death. So there are two ways and there are two kingdoms. And we see that being established here in Genesis chapter three. There's the kingdom of God and then there's the kingdom of this world. So we want to go the way of the kingdom of this world. So we have to walk and trust God's timing for the authority that he wants to grant us. God's kingdom is all about patience. How many of you understand that? He never gives anything immediately. We have to go through trials. Sometimes it takes years for us to get what God wants to give to us. And wherever righteousness is seen, it's manifested through a trust in God, through a suffering, through delayed gratification. It's never a quick thing with God. The kingdom of man or of this world is all about seizing authority, about taking it, about impatience and dominance. But we know that the meek shall inherit the earth. So after the consequences are handed down, God provides grace and hope in verses 20 and 21, like only he can. So Adam first ruled of the woman when he named her woman, which is how he demonstrated this ruling position over the animals as well when he named them. As I mentioned, naming is a kingly task. So when they sinned, Adam gave up his ruling position over Eve and he handed it over to Satan, just like that in a moment. But with his redeeming grace, God restores his rule over the woman in Genesis 3 and 16. And Adam will live out that restoration of his authority by renaming his wife. Adam first calls her a generic name, woman, but now he calls her Eve, which is a much more glorious name. So when Adam calls Eve her by her new name, which means life, it's like he's making a confession that he's accepting God's promise of the future Messiah who will come from his wife. So Eve had just brought death, but instead he calls her life the very opposite of what he sees. That's faith right there. God promised to bring life out of death, a savior out of Eve and Adam, and they accept this by faith. So Adam's acceptance of Eve kind of reverses his rejection of her or his rejection of God giving him to her when he attempted to blame her for the sin through God giving Eve to him. So the Lord made for Adam and Eve garments of skin and he clothed them. Now we see things being made right. There's hope in the midst of judgment. So after Adam renames Eve, he didn't condemn her, but he spoke prophetically to her and about her. And then we see this first blood sacrifice. And there's this crimson thread that begins in Genesis that will run all throughout the Bible that points to the blood of Jesus. So God removes their self-righteousness, which was symbolized by the fig leaves and replaces them with his covering. So we see that blood was shed and something innocent died for the guilty. This is, all what, this is all what sacrifice is about, and this is what Jesus does for us. John 1 and 29 says, The next day he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So God is giving a picture of that right here in Genesis 3 when he clothes Adam and Eve with the animal skins. And while there was hope, there was also one tragic and sad consequence 
God had to banish Adam and Eve from their beautiful garden home. And he did this so that they would not eat from the tree of life and live forever in sin. That would have been the greatest tragedy of all, to have eternal life, but to live in a sinful state. So he drove the man out. And this word drove comes from a Hebrew word, which means to drive out from something that you possessed, especially to expatriate someone or to make them an expatriate. So they're no longer a citizen of the country that they were born in. And then cherubim's angels were placed east of the garden. This is the entrance to the garden to protect them from trying to enter back in. And this would also prevent them from having a direct communication with God again. So this banishment marked a loss of dominion for Adam and also a direct link to God. So the one sad thing that happened is that the serpent, when he got Eve's attention and got her to take of the fruit, is that he stepped into the role of priest and started teaching the woman instead of Adam. Adam willingly gave over his role to the serpent and the serpent offered Eve what was like a sacramental food. She's receiving food from the serpent rather than from God. So one of the interesting things that we're going to see that develops here in chapter three, and that's going to recur throughout the scriptures is that woman is the bride and she's going to always be attacked by Satan. And if he can defile the temple or the church, the presence of God will leave. And we'll see this over and over again with the nation of Israel. So if there's anything we can learn about chapter three, it's that God's kingdom is about patience And wherever there's righteousness, it's going to come because of patience. If there's one thing we want to walk away with today is that God wants his people to grow up. He wants you to be a mature saint. He wants you to be a mature child of his. God desired for Adam and Eve to mature and become more and more like him. And a lot of times we hold ourselves back because we're afraid of overstepping our boundaries. We're always wanting God to tell us what to do right now. But God has given us a green light to love the world around us, to walk in the commandments that he's given us in the scriptures. He trusts us. If you are a mature child of God, he trusts you to walk in the knowledge and the wisdom that he's bestowed upon you. And if you don't feel like God has given you direction about every little thing, think about this. Maybe he thinks you're wise enough and trusts you enough to make decisions because he knows that you have his mind and his heart and you understand him because you know the scriptures. God wants mature children. For those of you who are parents, that's your sole responsibility as a parent is to grow those little children up to be responsible adults, to go out into the world and live for the glory of God. God wants mature children. So do you, right? But he has a timing and a way that he does this. We are never to determine our own maturity or the timeline for our own maturity without God's spirit leading us and guiding us. Always look to him. Never take authority before he has bestowed it upon you. That's it for chapter three of Genesis I trust that you learned something this week. I'm always so blessed by Genesis chapter three. Every single time I read it, I learn something new or I see something new in it. So again, if you have any questions, you can shoot me a DM on Instagram at Unfolding Words, Twitter at 
unfolding underscore words or send me an email. And if I get enough questions, I will do a whole session just to answer those questions. And again, you can join the Facebook group, ask questions there and let a friend know about the study. And I'd love for you to share on social media what you're learning about the study. If it's one small kernel of goodness that you've learned, please share it with me. I love to see how the study is blessing you. Thank you so much for tuning in this week. I'll see you back here next week for chapter four of Genesis. Until then, may God's word be a lamp to your feet and a light to your path. God bless you.